Welcome to this week's Fit for Purpose podcast. This week, I'm talking to Harry Hyman. He's the chief executive of a company called Primary Health Properties. It may not be one you've necessarily heard of, but actually it plays a key role in a lot of our lives because it's actually UK and Ireland's leading investor in modern healthcare properties. And also importantly, which is why we're talking to Harry today, it's committed to play a leading role in levelling up the UK by partnering with us on the development of the levelling up goal. So fantastic to get a chance to talk to Harry Hyman and also I think to talk to someone who is an entrepreneur and we often hear that word but actually today we have a chance to talk to someone who truly is an entrepreneur and has set up more than one company in his time. So I'll, I'll introduce him now. Harry, fantastic to have you on the podcast. Um, as I said, people may not have heard of Primary Health Properties. But tell us a little bit about what your business does and what your role is as the CEO. Well, thanks very much for that introduction, Justine, and lovely to be with you today. So PHP has a very simple uh, mission. It's to provide modern fit-for-purpose properties out of which the NHS delivers uh, primary healthcare, so that's your first port of call in your patient journey. And the idea came to me uh, more than 25 years ago when I when I discovered how important the GP was in the delivery of primary care in the UK, and I felt there was a really interesting opportunity for investors to to be the provider of the social infrastructure, the real estate, and leave the delivery of the healthcare to the experts within um, the NHS. So today. We have more than 500 primary care buildings across the whole of the UK. Uh, and that now, in addition to that, we have 19 properties in Ireland. Because, of course, the problems that primary care has are common to a number of healthcare systems all over the world. And, and one of the big drivers of this, of course, is the demographic um, tailwinds. Mm-hmm. We're lucky enough to live in um, a society where people are living longer where we have uh, a growing population and where we have a growing incidence of chronic diseases. And this puts an enormous stress and strain on the health sector. And one of the best ways of dealing with that, both from an economic standpoint, but also from a patient satisfaction standpoint, is to provide more of these services out of the primary care properties. So gone are the days, hopefully, of primary care being delivered out of a very old residential building by one or two doctors and welcome to the new primary care centre, which is a much bigger building with many associated services with perhaps six to 10 doctors delivering that. And to come back to the levelling up agenda, some of the areas in this country need the most social infrastructure because they're the most deprived, the most, the most under-advantaged. And, and that makes our mission very, very important because by providing this central social infrastructure, we can help not only with... Um, Uh, the um, delivery of care, but also in the prevention agenda, which I think is increasingly important in stopping people from falling ill in the first place. And I think you're absolutely right. And I was talking to an NHS trust um, last week who were really clear about the fact that one of the key things they needed to do was literally put more of their diagnostic services on the doorstep of some of the most deprived communities in the region that they served because that was the way they believed they would get maximum take up and actually 
they also recognise that particularly in rural areas, for example, often if you haven't got a car, then it becomes doubly challenging to be able to then access that healthcare. So this, this sense of almost, I think your idea was effectively you take that existing network of healthcare provision that is really the backbone of the NHS, which is GPs, and really make that play an ever more strategic role in delivering not just like day-to-day healthcare, but actually really driving that preventative healthcare model that we need to have, presumably. So one of the things that strikes me as as rather bizarre, that even today, 2021, there are a number of medical centres, some quite large ones, where it's not possible even to have a simple test like a blood test. And a patient's required to go to another medical centre or to a hospital to have that done. And of course, in today's environment, the pandemic has, has kind of shone a spotlight on the need to have a robust and resilient health service and how important it is to keep um, the expensive and infle- in many ways inflexible hospital structure to deal with severely ill patients, accidents and emergency and things like cancer treatment, and not to clog up the hospital through throughputs with um, the walking, the, the, the walking wounded, people who've got a minor injury or can easily be dealt with um, if, if there is a centre that's open when they have their minor injury. So this all requires space. And that's why we're, we're encouraging the, the development of more larger medical centres across the UK. And I suppose also for many people, They'll, they'll continue going in to do their job. They may well be somebody who's an essential worker or key worker, but for a lot of other people for whom homeworking becomes much more part of their day-to-day life than ever before, actually, presumably, that also changes the dynamics as to how people can access their healthcare. I certainly you always worked, you know, certainly for many years in London, found it really hard to get a GP appointment because I was trying to work out where I was going to be and mm. when I could fit that around meetings. And, and it may well be that with hybrid working, the ability to use some of those more local provisions through GPs and, and those centres you're talking about actually becomes easier for people to engage with. Absolutely right, Justine. Uh, and of course, it would be wrong to say that the pandemic hadn't had a disruptive impact on the way people see their GP. And of course, Zoom consultations Mm -hmm. will have their place. But very often that is just the initial triage, the initial assessment by the GP. And when you're dealing with people who've got what are called complex comorbidities, which Mm -hmm. in plain English is just more than one thing that's wrong with them, which tends to be the case with people who are more elderly, GPs are very reluctant to just do a, a diagnosis over the telephone because you can find out so much more about seeing the patient in a holistic um, in a holistic way. So what that means is that, of course, more of the initial triage consultations will be done on Zoom, but that doesn't reduce the need for more space for the follow-up. And indeed, many, many doctors do their Zoom consultations from their GP centre so that they can have a day in the, in, 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 in the primary care building and not just sit at home doing zoom consultations but actually seeing patients at the same at the same time and during the same day so of course the pandemic has changed things which is to, to some extent good but it doesn't re- remove the need for ancillary accommodation you know one of the big changes that we're going to get through the uh, anticipated health and social care bill that's going through parliament currently is um, a, a, a much larger number of staff 
coming out of hospital and being put into the primary care center. Mm -hmm. Let's just take mental health, for example. Uh, most primary care centers in Ireland have a mental health facility within them, as well as a drug and alcohol abuse and a child uh, protection agency inside the medical center. And I think we're beginning to see that as a trend within the UK. And we know what a stress and strain the pandemic has put on many people. So unfortunately, the take up on mental health service is going to be large. And, but a lot of that can be done from the primary care centre, provided it's big enough. So it all starts to shift to the front line, doesn't it? Um, and yeah, and in a way, I guess it's turbocharging a sense of how the NHS and health provision needed to change that we've had for a while, but actually COVID has perhaps fast-tracked some of those existing structural changes that we'd already got in mind to, to put through the system. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And the, and, the pro, and the progress towards integrated care systems, mm -hmm. trying to get rid of the siloing between primary care and secondary care, I think is actually a very important development which should be encouraged. Um, but you can't get around it that you can't deliver a 21st century healthcare service out of 19th and 20th century residential um, accommodation. It's just no, you know, the buildings are just, a lot of the primary care stock is just not fit for purpose. And, and the problems are the worst in our, our, our less well-off areas within, within, within the UK. So just tell us a little bit more about that, because obviously... Now we're going to be working, we are working with PHP on levelling up. Just tell us a little bit about yeah. the levelling up angle. Let's dig into that for, for your business. Sure. Well, in a way, it's all to do with the evidence. I mean, the, the poorest areas of the country have got the biggest healthcare problems. And that's because um, a lot of healthcare follows socioeconomic um, well-offness. So it, it's not a surprise to many people that old mining communities, iron and steel towns ha have got the biggest problems because they've got the biggest levels of unemployment and the biggest levels of social deprivation and also the biggest problems in, in perhaps education. So this can be addressed and it's very important to us at PHP that we play our role in this by bringing this investment in the infrastructure. And for us, that's a crucial part of what we do. So we, we, we really want to see um, investment in healthcare in in these less well-off parts of the country. And for you, it sounds like that's really ingrained in PHP's wider culture, in a sense of of what you're trying to accomplish and and your purpose, in a way, as a as a business in the first place. I think you put your finger on it, uh, Justine. You know, in a previous existence, I financed forklift trucks and fleets of cars and aeroplanes. Um, but I really do um, get a bit of a buzz myself in, in actually providing investment for the wellness and, uh, of, of people. It, it makes it a very rewarding from a personal standpoint, personal standpoint to be doing that and to encouraging the flow of capital into social infrastructure. Of course, we have to earn a return. Our stakeholders want that. The pension funds and life companies that invest in PHP itself as a public company want that return, but they're very happy to see uh, that, that, that their money is being used for a good purpose rather than just uh, an, an, you know, a normal purpose as such. And that, that's incredibly important to us, uh, putting our, our social hat on as part of our ESG agenda. And that's one of the reasons that we wanted to get involved with Fit for Purpose and the levelling up agenda. 
and really looking forward to all of the the work ahead with you as well and I guess you know obviously necessarily work alongside government I guess in in delivering what you do that that helps that wider NHS agenda that's presumably a relationship that's really important to manage day to day though you're obviously doing doing that at a local level with local NHS trusts the GPs how do you how do you day to day run those relationships presumably you're taking a lot of pressure off the GPs by simply allowing them to get on with the the organization of providing healthcare rather than having to worry about what's going on in the building they've got yeah uh, yeah um you know GPs are good at what they do and we're good at what we do and maintaining on a planned maintenance basis buildings it may sound very uh, prosaic but it's a really important uh, part of our function and for over half our portfolio we do in fact maintain the exterior of those buildings uh, we hope to a very good standard and remove that as an obligation for the GPs. I think one other point that is very very important about the attractiveness of the accommodation is in the recruitment agenda we know that there's a massive problem in terms of staffing up uh, the NHS for the future uh, that's caused by a lot of different things but undoubtedly you know and, and doctors have told me this face to face recruiting new doctors is much much easier if you've got a nice fit for purpose building than if you're trying to encourage them to um, take up a position when they're working from cramped unsuitable not um, purpose-built uh, property so the physical environment in which people work is very important not only for and it's important not only to the doctors and the nurses and the ancillary staff but also of course to the patient i think that's absolutely right and i am going to make a little point here whilst whilst we're at it um because we are fellow accountants aren't we harry we're both trained accountants i think it's fair to absolutely. say absolutely yeah that is true to say that is true and and i think one of the the points i'd make building on, on what you said earlier is sometimes if you're looking at a career finance or whatever it's easy to think oh i don't like i'm not interested in numbers or or I, I'm not sure I really want to do finance or investment. That sounds really dull or whatever. But actually, as I discovered, um, it's sort of, you find your industry. And actually I spent a long time also working in healthcare and pharmaceuticals and, and I'm a finance person, but I wanted to work there because I actually thought that I would get a lot of satisfaction from being part of that industry. Because just like you, I, I think it really matters. And so, you know, some of these wider roles that open up as careers for people, um, whether it's it's finance, whether it's law, um, whether it's HR, actually, I think what often people don't realise is it's it's it opens a world of very different sectors that you can apply those quite common um, common skill sets to, and and you know you've obviously done it just as I did, um, looking at healthcare, and and I think you've been really clear about you know, how, how important that is to you. And probably it's a good time for me to ask you, Harry, mm. you talked about, you know, when you started and, and how you need finance for drugs and other things. Yeah, and then yeah. thought, I think this is more important to me. Tell us a little bit about, it's all, all very well having that idea, isn't it? Yeah. That's different to then being the kind of person who knows about how to get that idea off the ground and, and mm. get finance and do all of that. Tell us about what you've enjoyed about being an entrepreneur, but also what it's like to start something from scratch like that. Well, I think I think you have to be quite brave and you have to 
take a decision that you're going to go for it and then commit to it for a, a, a period of time to give it a proper chance to work. And, and certainly as we sit here today with £2.7 billion worth of property and being in the FTSE 250, it seems a long way from when we started or I started with an idea and my initial backers who helped me get it off the ground. Uh, and I'll be eternally grateful to them uh, for doing that. And, and we first became a public company way back in 1996 when we went to the AIM market. Uh, we had £5 million worth of property and our initial fundraise was like £20 million. Um, And it's been a long and very interesting journey with lots of ups, quite a few downs, surviving uh, outside shocks like the global financial crisis, which was not <laughs> easy to do, but we got through it. And I think you just need to stick to your guns, stick to your principles. And if you've got a good idea, you'll find someone to back it. I mean, at the moment, we live in a very entrepreneurial society where there's a vast amount of capital looking to be deployed. And I think it's a great time for people wanting to set off down the road. But I would, I would say that you should really get a proper professional um, background, as you were saying, Justine, in order to give you that confidence and that ability mm -hmm. to get see your, I, see your idea through. And don't be afraid of the stumbling blocks that get in the way. Rome wasn't built in a day and certainly PHP wasn't either. <laughs> so don't, don't worry too much about possible failure. Just focus on what you need to do to maximize your chance of success, I guess, is partly what you're saying. Yeah, I think I think that's right. And the younger you start, the better in my in my view. I started relatively late in life at 37 with the idea for PHP. And, and actually to this day, I regret the fact that I didn't start it perhaps 10 years earlier. But you can't live your life backwards. You have to take account of your circumstances. And certainly in the time before I started PHP, I learned a lot from the previous people and organizations that I work for that stood me in good stead. So accumulate that experience. And then when you finally get that spark of inspiration that you're really convinced is, is the right thing, go for it is your message, isn't it? It is in yeah. a sensible way. I mean, you know, we've all got to, you've got to be happy with what you're doing and, and take sensible steps and not lunatic steps. But I think in particular today, which is very, very different from 25 years ago, there is a much, much bigger pool of, of risk capital available to back these ideas. Do you feel that, you know, in terms of the people side of what you're doing, so PHB has a, a wide real estate empire in terms of the people it employs, it's perhaps smaller than a typical FTSE, FTSE company. Do you think that's enabled you to to kind of almost keep a tight culture so people know one another and you don't get lost in your business in terms of, of progressing? Um, yeah, I think that's a very prescient analysis, uh, Justine. We have uh, 60 people in PHP, uh, which doesn't sound a lot, but but that's a characteristic of a property business in that you don't need a lot of people. We, we outsource a lot of things, uh, which is a sensible way of progressing and part of the 21st century uh, business culture. Um, of course, we like to be nimble and agile. Um, and, and I think that's an essential part of being an entrepreneur as well, being able to change your ideas or adapt them to changes in circumstances. But uh, it sounds to me also like you're not necessarily someone who 
as a child or in school, you know, there are some entrepreneurs who you, you can kind of ask them when they first wanted to do a business and they'll say it's, it's always what they wanted to do. And they did their first business when they were 12 and tried yeah. to sell X, Y or Z. That for you, you're someone who got on with a career and then suddenly thought, I, I think I can do my own thing here and I've got a great idea and I'm just going to go for it. So it's maybe slightly different as well to, to almost that evangelistic um, entrepreneur that we often hear about. Yeah, I think that's that's a pretty pretty fair assessment. Uh, I needed to have, perhaps I was a little bit reticent and and needed a, a little bit of a you know needed that professional um, backstop, so that I knew I would always be able to do something if my idea was a terrible one and didn't take off. You're quite right. Um, like, sorry, go on. No, but I did I did do a well. But they seemed to me like entrepreneurial things at the time. I ran the bar at college, I ran functions, I always had an eye to, to trying to do something uh, in an entrepreneurial way, but I needed the right thing at the right time. And, and that for me was um, founding PHP back in 1995. I think it's quite interesting because um, I guess uh, maybe I've been a political entrepreneur as much as anything else, you know, it started mm -hmm. in business and uh, decided I, I felt I wanted to put my time into community stuff and politics and you know it could have worked it, it could it could have failed but actually it was this sense of you know just needing to have a go at something and try and and try and make a go of, of it but certainly on the business side I, I guess you know for me I'm someone who I, I was always fascinated by business how it worked the people who were in it, how you ran businesses, the different bits of them. Were you sort of similar at school? You just saw this business world and thought, that just looks so interesting to be part of. I was less interested in the sector and just more interested in what business was all about. Yeah, I, I think that's true. It's quite a long time ago for me, so it's difficult to remember back. But I, 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 I have got a quite an inquiring mind, and I do like to find out lots of different things. Uh, and I must say that in my professional career, which was at Price Waterhouse, as it was then called, I got the real fantastic opportunity to see lots and lots of uh, different businesses on the on the bigger side of things. But my my father. Uh, was a sort of small-scale um, accountant, and quite often I'd I'd be I'd help him with the preparation of a sole trader's account. So mm -hmm. I had like that perfect combination of experience of dealing with the biggest com companies in the country from a, from an audit standpoint, but also being grounded enough to know that at the smaller end, businesses, uh, you know, it's all about cash flow and about sales and 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 marketing and. Um, I, th I think that was a great combination. Mm -hmm. So thank you to him and thank you to Price Waterhouse for helping in the development of my career. And also thank you to uh, my, my boss, Michael Goddard at a company called Baltic, who was brilliant financier, quite, quite a difficult person to work for, very demanding, but absolutely razor sharp mind. He, he taught me not to be afraid of, uh, of, of the situation and to get in and that logic and analysis and, the, and, and that power of analysis is all important. It's, 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 so, it's so interesting. Again, you know, my, I trained at Pricewaterhouse, <laughs> as it was then. I don't know whether you realise that. But um, one of the reasons I wanted to become an accountant and do that training was precisely to get that spread of yeah. very different clients, very different size companies, very different sectors, um, 
you know, I didn't get that that sort of parental side of experience as you did from your your dad. But I mean, it's quite a unique combination, isn't it? Seeing the the biggest and the smallest companies and and really sort of unpicking almost how they work. And that's what I always loved about about finance and and I guess still find fascinating today. Now, I've got a few final questions for you, Harry. Um, And actually, before we get into that, I have to ask about the wider Harry, because you're not just an entrepreneur, are you? Um, You've got a lot of other interests. Um, Again, that mirror some of mine. So you're into your sport, aren't you? You're into your wine, you're into (laughs) opera. Tell us a little bit about, you know, this side of you that seems to really revel in making sure you're not just all about work and your wider interests that clearly fire you up as well. Yeah, well, I, I think um, a good broad education helps with that. And I, I've always tried to maintain a balance between some of my interests and, and work and, and maybe some of them run, run, you know, I'm lucky enough that some of them work together. So I, I do have a, a passion for wine. I try to keep it under control, <laughs> uh, uh, but but it, I, I you know could wax lyrical about that. But uh, um, talking of waxing lyrical, I think my major outside interest is is really opera. Mm. I find it an amazing art form that can really move you to tears or move you to laughter, and it seems to combine the best of drama and music and singing and costume movement. Uh, and unfortunately, it has this rather elitist view um and and i i think i think that's wrong opera can be for everyone and and what would life be without music you know you have music at christenings you have music at marriages unfortunately you have music at funerals at sporting occasions it really unites people and it sort of sparks a sort of harmonic something or other in the brain which 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 makes you feel different so for me, opera is very important. And I founded something called the International Opera Awards in 2012 to recognise um, talent within opera. And most importantly of all, to provide a set of bursaries for aspiring talent within opera. And, we, and, and I suppose it's relatively easy for people from a very well-off background or a middle-class background to make progress in opera, less so during the pandemic, as we've seen. But people from, from a less well-off background find it incredibly hard. And, you know, a three or £5,000 bursary can transform a young person's um, career, not only in singing, but musical conductors, directors, scenery, costume, all has to go together in, in, in the opera performance. So I like teamwork, and operas seem to me to be the result of fantastic teamwork, and, and I'm really chuffed. Uh, the Opera Awards has, has, t- has kind of taken off and, and one of my ambitions is to make it bigger and better and, and to um, really develop the ideas of, of opera and make it more accessible to people um, throughout the world, really, if that's not too bold an ambition. <laughs> it's not. I think, I think you should definitely go for it. Now, I have three, but I'm going to make it four. Quick okay. fire final questions to close. You'll understand why I've made it four when I ask the final one. So first quick fire one. Best piece of advice ever received? Employ people who are better than you. Very <laughs> difficult to do um, because everyone thinks they're the best at everything. But I think to really grow your ideas in your company, you need people that are better than you. And of course, no one can be the best at everything. 
Great stuff. Next one, proudest career moment. I think the merger that we did with a company called Medics, uh, which completed in March 2019, which was an £800 million uh, transaction, moved my business from 1.5 billion of property, which I thought was a lot at the time, up to 2.3 billion. Merger went very well, and I can look back on that as a fantastically difficult uh, transaction, but a fantastically rewarding one for the people and the assets. And we're now a much stronger company with which to deliver um, the social infrastructure capital that 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 is our mission to do and and, and the long term in a sense secured i guess as well uh, absolutely and and you know 2.7 billion sounds like a lot but actually it's actually still a relatively small player in social infrastructure terms so that's my goal is to carry on growing that right final two questions favorite book or movie uh on the book side i'm going to go back to great expectations Charles Dickens I think it's just a wonderful story brilliantly written it used to terrify me as a child and I think <laughs> people, people read Dickens when they're too young people should go I back to it and, re and rediscover the story and who would have thought this is a plot, plot spoiler uh spoiler alert uh <laughs> that that Magwitch would be the the Bennett you know would be the um what's the right word patron of Pip yeah. big Very surprise good. yeah Okay, and then final, final quick five question. Favourite opera? Have to ask you that. Uh, well, one of my friends who's a restaurateur would never answer the question. He was always asked what's his favourite restaurant and he was afraid of upsetting people. But I'm going to be bold here and go for Tosca. Uh, Puccini's Tosca, because I just think that has got it all. I mean, the music is fantastic. Uh, there's love, there's betrayal, there's lust, there's drama and emotion and it's quite short <laughs> which 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 makes it something you can easily digest brilliant well look harry hyman ceo of primary health properties thanks so much for doing the podcast it is absolutely brilliant having you and your business as part of the leveling up goals work and just great, I think, for people to get a chance to hear about, you know, your journey, your entrepreneurship and, and what you're doing now and what drives you. So thank you so much for doing the podcast today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Justin. Nice to talk to you. Thanks. Thanks.